I remember <coughs> a little over two years ago, I met this uh, Chinese foreign exchange student named Samson. Uh, and Samson was a Buddhist, because that was one of the few religions that the Chinese government is relatively comfortable with. And as a result, Samson came to America having never really even heard the basic concepts of Christianity. But because of that, he was actually amazed when he heard phrases like, Jesus died for your sins for the first time. Like, he didn't just take those words for granted. They kind of sunk in at a level that was kind of surprising. And so when he heard them for the first time, he actually understood it better than most of us, I think, who have heard it our whole lives. And because of that, all that stuff blew him away. Like, Samson thought that the claims of Christianity were absolutely astounding. And you might think that that would make him more skeptical of Christianity than most, just because it's so foreign to him. But actually, the opposite happened. Actually, in fact, in a very short amount of time, Samson actually believed in Jesus. The lifelong Buddhist that came to America heard the gospel, and immediately he gave up everything that he had built his whole life around to follow Christ. And at first, my friend Mark, who had been the one primarily sharing the gospel with Samson during this time, uh, he told us to keep his conversion quiet. Uh, because, you see, it's illegal to be a Christian in China if you're not part of the state-sponsored churches there. And we didn't want to bring any unwanted attention on Samson. Uh, but, like, everything Samson did was monitored. So it was, we wanted to keep it under wraps as much as possible. Because just from talking with Samson, I found out that he couldn't actually even text his friends in China without using an app that was owned by the Chinese government. And so we knew we had to keep a pretty tight lid on his decision to follow Christ, just for his own safety and protection. And, well, that lasted probably half a day. <laughs> And it wasn't even any of us that let it slip, actually. It was Samson himself. You see, Samson was just so excited when he actually became a Christian that he couldn't keep it to himself. And so the day after Samson professed Christ, I, I checked Facebook uh, for the first time that day. And I found out that he made a public post declaring his commitment. And at first, I almost had a heart attack. I mean, I was like, does, does he know what he just did? Does Samson know what he just declared for all the world to see? And does he know what that means? But almost immediately after I thought that, I was convicted again by the same thought that just gripped me basically since I met Samson. I kind of realized, yeah, he does, he does get it. In fact, I think Samson got it way more than I ever have. He may or may not have realized that he had just flagged himself as a potential threat to the Chinese government. Uh, I still honestly don't know, and I've never talked to him about it personally. But he did realize one really important thing. He realized that the good news that he had heard, that God himself took on flesh to pay our debt and reconcile us to himself he realized that that good news had to be shared. It had to be celebrated. It had to be the most important thing in his life. Samson understood the gospel. 
And as a result, he declared publicly the same thing that we see Paul declare here in verse 16. In that Facebook post, Samson declared publicly, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think the thing that might keep us from doing the same thing and showing the same boldness with our lives is that we might not understand the gospel like Samson did. Even if you know the gospel, you probably don't really grasp it as deep as you might think. And I'm here to tell you that that's always going to keep you from actually following Christ and sharing the gospel. You'll always be held back by the shame of a gospel that you don't believe in. And so, before we really get into things, let's get one thing straight. What is the gospel? Here we see Paul says it's the power of God for salvation. But what does that mean, really? And here I want us to move past all our Christian cliches, really get to the root of what he's saying here. Because what Paul's saying is actually pretty astounding. Paul's life is dedicated to going around and telling everyone that he knows that some first century Galilean carpenter from some backwater town was God in the flesh and that he lived the perfect life and died a sacrificial death on your behalf so that if anyone believes in this carpenter who also rose from the dead and again happens to be God, then that person will live joyfully with him forever. This gospel that Paul proclaims says that you and everyone you know is born in rebellion against God. But that God himself became a man and suffered the punishment for your rebellion so you could have peace with him. Or as he puts it just a little bit later on in this letter, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if I started just going around and saying something like this in any place where Christianity wasn't already the dominant worldview, people would think I was either stupid, crazy, or both. Probably both. I mean, nothing about what I just said makes sense. It's all insane. Unless I can back it up. Unless it's true. Unless this is actually God's chosen means to show love and mercy to people who have rebelled against him. Because if this is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then not only can I have confidence that I can back up these bold claims, not only can I have confidence that the evidence will back me up, but even more importantly, I can have confidence that I've got God on my side. Even more than the evidence, I can count on God himself to support me. So for Paul, you see, even more than the fact that he had over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection to back up his claims, is the fact that he had God himself to back him up. Because this message, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what he's saying is the message and the content of the gospel is God's power to save people forever. And so what this means is you might think what your friends or you yourself really need is more evidence that Jesus is who he says he is or maybe better proofs of the resurrection. But I'm telling you, the evidence is there 
we have more concrete information about Jesus from more diverse sources, both Christian and non-Christian alike, than we do about anyone else in the, creative, in the world, in the ancient world, sorry. And yet, we all still come up with different interpretations of the evidence before us. And so I think what that shows is that our problem ultimately isn't a lack of evidence. It's a failure on our part to weigh the evidence rightly. You see, when you consider any idea, no matter what it is, you're not simply just weighing that idea on completely balanced scales. No, like, the way our brains work, we've, we've been predisposed to tilt the scales in one direction or another by the way we look at the world. Your worldview, the basic assumptions that you make about the world around you and how you fit into it, that affects your interpretation of the evidence in front of you. And the thing is, it takes more than just sound arguments and convincing proofs to change these assumptions. Because these assumptions have been so reinforced throughout our entire lives that it's almost impossible to just change them. But that's when the gospel comes in, with saving power. The message of the gospel, Paul says, challenges all of our assumptions about the world around us. Everything you believe, for example, that people don't rise from the dead, is turned on its head by the gospel. And ordinarily, when a message does this, when we hear something that goes against all our most fundamental concepts of the world around us, we instinctively reject it on the spot. But strangely enough, that's not what happens with the gospel. You see, when someone really is shocked by the gospel, when they actually understand how the gospel challenges everything they know, that's when that person is actually closest to believing the gospel. And that's because the gospel has the unique power to challenge and change your assumptions. What the gospel does is it shakes the foundations of how you look at the world around you. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the amazing, beautiful, and to be honest, crazy claims of the gospel, when you actually understand them, they jolt you awake and they force you to grapple with your assumptions about the world. And I think that's why it was easier for Samson to come to believe in Christ than most of us who have grown up around Christianity. You see, Samson had never heard any of this stuff before, so familiarity didn't have the chance to take away the shock of the gospel. Samson actually recognized the gospel for what it was. And that understanding, and the object of that understanding, namely the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, was and is today the power of God for salvation in him. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 16. He's saying the gospel has the power to come into our lives and change us at a fundamental level. And he's saying it doesn't stop when you believe that Jesus rose from the dead for you. No, what he's saying, when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he's assuming that the gospel continues to work in the people who believe. So believing is only the beginning of the gospel's work. It won't stop challenging you, if you're a Christian, until everything you believe about the world around you is the same as the way that God himself looks at the world around you. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation 
And Paul makes it clear that that includes everything from the moment you believe in Jesus Christ until the day you're raised up with him. And one implication of that is that if you believe in Christ, you can have perfect confidence and peace in his power to save you. You can know the gospel will challenge you in ways that are going to be uncomfortable. But because of that, you can have confidence that not only are you secure right now in Christ, but you will never lack that security again. And if the gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes, and you know God wants to save people, then you can have confidence that God will do what you can't and actually bring people to believe it. Paul makes it clear that faith in the gospel is absolutely necessary and entirely sufficient to save people. He makes it clear, especially in this letter, that without faith, no one's going to make it to heaven. But he also says in chapter 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so every single person who puts their trust in Christ to be the master and the savior of their life will be saved. And no one will be saved apart from trusting in Christ. Salvation is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, like he says in Romans 6.23. But faith is how you hold out your hands to receive that gift. And what's more, Paul says the gospel is the power that actually compels that faith. Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we'll get to that in a second, but he specifically says that this righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And to risk oversimplification, um, what he's saying there in a nutshell is that faith and the gospel both work inseparably from each other. And so it's the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel that awakens faith. And it's by faith that the righteousness of God is revealed personally in the gospel as well. And so faith is both the means by which the gospel works and the effect of the gospel's work in one's heart. And you might think that was just a theological you know, detour that we took, but that does have some practical implications. And I think there are at least two major implications that we can draw from that. And the first one is, you have to know that the gospel won't do anything apart from faith. Unless someone believes in the gospel, that person will not be saved. But second, you have to understand that the natural work of the gospel is to produce faith. You have to understand that the message you are speaking actually has the power to save. The gospel has the power all by itself to produce every condition necessary for the salvation that it offers. And so it's not up to you or anyone else to make someone believe. It's only up to the gospel to produce faith in an individual and for that person to exercise that faith in response to the gospel's work. So the gospel not only enables us to not be ashamed, knowing that it's powerful enough to do everything that it's meant to do completely by itself, it also compels us to not be ashamed, knowing that if someone doesn't share the gospel with our friends who don't know Jesus, they will never experience its saving power. Paul says, how are they to call on him in whom in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom, him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
If you keep the gospel to yourself out of shame and fear, then you're withholding the only thing in the universe with the power to save. Now, I want to be sensitive here because I, I don't say that to shame or guilt anyone. But I do hope this grips you. I hope this hits home. You carefully reflect on whether you really functionally believe this. If this passage does convict you, then I want you to remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might feel that your entire life you've been ashamed of the gospel. And you, you might be right, but the good news is that Christ came to take away all of your shame and guilt. And so you're not defined by any of your shortcomings in anything, including evangelism. You are most fundamentally, at your root, someone that Christ loved and died to save. And now, he calls you to turn from that shame and to follow him. And so today, I would invite you, maybe it's for the first time, and maybe it's just a renewed commitment, to take the gospel seriously when it says that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I would challenge you to demonstrate the same commitment that we see in Paul and in Samson's lives. I would have you take a close look at everything that gets in the way of your commitment, everything that could possibly make you ashamed of the gospel, now to have you intentionally reject those things and decide that you'll trust in the power of the good news of Jesus Christ as it works both in your life and in the world around you. And the final ultimate reason that I would give for doing that. The reason you should not be ashamed of the gospel and ultimately the reason that the gospel even is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes is that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, God shows us, and even more, he actually offers us his perfect righteousness so that we might be saved by that righteousness. And so as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in his life, Jesus perfectly demonstrated God's righteousness. And in his death and resurrection, he declared that he would trade that righteousness for our unrighteousness so that he could raise us up with him to share in his resurrected life through that righteousness. And so the revelation of righteousness that Paul talks about here in verse 17, it doesn't just entail demonstration, but also imputation. There's another one of those 10-letter vocabulary words. But what that's saying is the gospel not only shows us that God is righteous, but it also shows us that God gives us that righteousness as our own. And so when a person sees and recognizes God's righteousness as it's demonstrated and manifested in Jesus Christ, then that person at that point in time also receives that righteousness as their own. So they take that righteousness, and Paul says other places in the Bible, that they're clothed with it. It envelops them, and it defines their very life. And so it's not that they're morally perfect now, but 
even in their naked unrighteousness, they're covered by the robes of Jesus' righteousness, his perfect righteousness. And further, because of that, that righteous record that we have from him turns into righteous living throughout the course of the life of a Christian. And so it's been said that a Christian's pursuit of holiness is ultimately just a process of becoming who we already are. And so our lived righteousness, our practiced righteousness, is the realization and the outworking of our imputed righteousness. And one big thing that Paul's really trying to drive home here, in case this wasn't already awesome enough, is that this has always been what all of human history has been pointing forward to. You see, those quotes in verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith, indicate that Paul's quoting the Old Testament here. And specifically, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. And in the book of Habakkuk and the other prophetic books of the Bible, what we have is the culmination and the climax of all of human history up to that point. And so all that longing and conflict and struggle that has just plagued mankind ever since Genesis 3 just keeps bubbling up and building up throughout the Old Testament. And the prophets come at the very end of that buildup. They come at the last section of the Old Testament. And so they tie all that together, and they recall God's promises to his people throughout history. And they also record God's renewal of those promises. And so God's saying, no, I'm, I haven't forgotten. I am still being faithful to those promises. And so the prophetic books, they highlight the reality of a world that is utterly broken and not at all as it should be. And yet they also highlight that a good God is ruling over that world and working in that world according to his justice, love, and mercy. And that creates a tension that is really hard to resolve if you just leave the Old Testament where it is. And you see the prophets themselves wrestle with that tension. You see Habakkuk himself in that passage uh, that Paul quotes from has just voiced his complaint to God that uh, the world around him is just so full of wickedness and injustice. But yet, right afterwards, after pouring out his heart, he expresses confidence that God is good and that he will act rightly in response to that injustice. But the confusing thing is that God's response to Habakkuk and to all the other prophets is to command him to wait for his righteousness. God says that he will deal justly with those who oppress his people and that he will show love and mercy to those who trust in him. But he tells Habakkuk that in the meantime, the righteous shall live by his faith. So he says to Habakkuk, just for now, just wait and trust me. God promises that his righteousness will be revealed, but not yet at least not in full. For now, God tells his people that they have to trust in his righteousness to save them, with only the promise that that righteousness is coming. 
So the, pro the prophets bring that tension to the surface, and they start to point forward towards that solution to that tension, but it's like they never actually reach out and make contact with that solution. And so for the prophets, the resolution of all this tension is on the horizon, but it's still just out of reach. And that's where the Old Testament leaves off. But going back to our text in Romans here, what Paul's saying is that the gospel is that resolution that the prophets were reaching for and could never get to. This is what the people of Israel have been hoping for for centuries. This is the righteousness of God that God promised his people and that they've been waiting for. And that's why Paul says that this gospel is for the Jew first, because they've been waiting for it for centuries. You see, they knew that the Old Testament was an unfinished story that pointed forward to a future fulfillment. Heck, they even understood that their scripture pointed to that fulfillment in a coming Messiah. But the really confusing part for them, for the first century audience that Paul writes to, is that this gospel isn't just for the Jew. It's for the Greek as well. In other words, it's for everyone else, too. And that was totally unexpected. You see... God had promised to reveal his righteousness to all the nations on the earth. And the Jews in their scriptures saw that. But most of them during Paul's time expected that to mean that God was going to punish all the nations that had oppressed Israel for hundreds of years. And instead, what we see in Jesus Christ is God's righteousness came to these nations as, as he promised. But it came to save them not to condemn them. And so, you see, the righteousness of God was everything that the Jews had longed for and desired, and more. But it was also radically different from everything they had envisioned. And so the salvation that God promised was far greater than anything they could imagine. But its work was also so much different than anything they had ever pictured. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed not just to save those who had no hope of saving themselves, but also to offer his righteousness as a substitute to those who had no hope of righteousness in themselves. And I think Paul's wording of his quotation in Habakkuk is important here. You see, one interesting thing here is that Paul doesn't quote any of the popular Greek translations of the Old Testament. He just kind of makes up his own translation. Well, I say makes up, but he was very good at Hebrew, so he wrote his own translation. Uh, but he does a really important thing that's, I think, a little confusing at first. He moves that phrase, by faith, as you can see, so that it's between the righteous and shall live. And so Paul's wording, as you can see in your ESV footnotes, is actually, the righteous by faith shall live. And that's important. Because now, you could either attach that by faith with the righteous or with shall live. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that kind of ambiguity is intentional. Paul doesn't want to leave behind the Habakkuk uh, quotation that he's quoting, but he wants to lead us to see how the gospel transforms the righteous shall live by faith into the one who is righteous by faith shall live. 
You see, now that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel, faith no longer primarily points forward in hope for us. No, now what Paul's saying is it, look, it looks primarily backwards in confidence at Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so now God's people know with confidence that they're righteous in God's sight because they've been made into the righteousness of God himself by the God-man himself. And so these people are righteous by faith because it's by faith that they lay hold of God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. And because of that righteousness, they know that they will live eternally secure with their God and Savior. But even though faith does now look back at the foundation laid by Christ, it still does look forward in the same way as the prophets. And so the basis and the object for our faith as a Christian lies in the past work and the present person of Jesus Christ. But our hope is still in the future reign of Christ. In other words, the gospel doesn't just stop at Jesus' resurrection. That's the climax, but that's not the end. It doesn't stop until all of creation shares in his resurrected life. And so God's revealing of his righteousness won't be finished until it fills the entire universe. And so Christians from the first century until today join in with Old Testament prophets and waiting for that day when the whole creation is redeemed. The only difference between us and them is that you don't just have to wait. If you are a Christian, that means you get to witness God actively bringing about his salvation every day through the gospel. And even crazier, you don't just get to watch it, you actually get to be a part of it. God invites you to join him and go out and share the good news that has the power to reveal the saving righteousness of God and transform the universe. Is there any better reason to not be ashamed of the gospel than that? This gospel is the basis by which you are eternally secure in Christ. It's the basis for your hope for all of your loved ones. It's your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness on your behalf. I mean, is there any more important message to build your life on than that Christ has eradicated both the guilt and the presence of sin for everyone who will trust in him? I mean, is there any more important news to share with those around you than that Jesus has canceled completely their debt to God if they'll only receive his payment for them? Is there any greater eternal hope to cling to than the sure confidence that God will complete his work in all of history to reveal his righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you have come and entered into the brokenness and the despair and the unrighteousness of this world, God. And you've humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross even so you could exalt us and lift us up to enjoy you forever, God. 
God, I thank you for the firmness of that promise, God. I pray that you would press just the joy of the gospel deeper into our hearts every day, God, and that we would delight in you, God, and be compelled by that joy to go out and just declare that news to everyone around us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.